listener production. This podcast is being recorded on Gadigal land. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this country and elders past, present. We extend our respect to any First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people joining us today. So, um, I don't even know how to introduce um, our guest today because I've been obsessing over uh, this person since I was 21. I'm 28 now. It was probably one of the first podcasts I ever listened to. Um, I'm sure you all know who I'm talking about, but I also just want to edge you off for a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I There were two people in the world I wanted to get on this podcast. And the first person was Esther Perel, and we got her. Somehow that poor woman had to deal with me in a hotel room, exhausted, crying to her about my childhood trauma. And the other person, I'm sure you all know who it is. It's Dan Savage. Hello, Woo! Dan Savage. Hello, Abby. How are you? I'm all right. Um, you have no idea. Uh, I, I just want to gush a bit to you for a moment. But um, I've been listening to your podcast, yeah, since I was 20 or 21. So almost eight years. And I podcasting back then wasn't really as, as big as it is now, obviously. And I think I only ever downloaded your podcast. It was just you in my ears. And um, I've listened to every episode of the past 12 years. So I've gone back and I am, I think the biggest fan in the country. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for listening to my show all these years and uh, for talking me up on your show, which is now Big Head. I appreciate uh, the boost. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Constantly. If you haven't heard the Savage Love cast, I posted on my Instagram story when I said I had an interview with Dan and I said, start listening today. It is so much fun. It is so interesting, so educational. I One of my favorite things to do in the world is go on a road trip with someone and play your podcast and pause before you answer. And I force people to show me how, what, how they would answer to see if I like them or not. I think it's really good. <laughs> good way to tell them, like, are you going to give shit advice or are you going to, and then we have little arguments about, about your answers. Yeah. Um, it's a really great way to tell if somebody has a, the kind of emotional IQ or judgment that you would look for in a partner. <laughs> exactly. It's a test and they don't realize, oh, let's play this fun game, but it's actually a really insidious test that I do. So thank you for <laughs> You're welcome. Out partner. <laughs> so I, um, I heard somewhere that Savage Love, the column started, what, 19? 32 years ago ago and change. Yeah. Amazing. And it started as a joke. Can you explain that? I met somebody who was moving uh, from Madison, Wisconsin to Seattle, Washington to start a newspaper. He was Tim Kack. He had founded the onion and then sold it. Tim basically invented writing bullshit in the AP style. And he was telling me about his paper and I looked at him and said, well, you should have an advice column because everybody reads those. You see the Q&A format, you can't not stop and read it. Mm-hmm. And I was a fan of the genre. I grew up reading Ann Landers and Abigail Van Buren and Xavier Hollander and my brother's Penthouse magazines. Penthouse was a the dirtier Playboy and oh. the Playboy advisor was the advice column and Playboy. Ask the Madam was the sex advice column in Penthouse by a call girl named Xavier Hollander who'd read a memoir. And I loved her stuff. I was reading, like they say, the old cliche, I only read it for the articles. I was literally Mm. reading Penthouse (laughs) for the articles after my brothers (laughs) were through gluing the pages together. And (laughs) when I said to Tim, like, have an advice column, I wasn't angling for the gig, but I pretty quickly realized I'd kind of been preparing for the gig all my life by Mm. inhaling all these advice columns. And 
why it was a joke at first is that I was going to be a gay guy giving straight people advice about how to have sex in a straight newspaper. And, you know, there's been some iterations of like the gay guy giving advice to the straight friend or straight girlfriend Mm -hmm. since, but I was really the first. And it was a little at once counterintuitive and very intuitive because straight people, in my experience, after I came out as gay in high school, had always come to me for sex advice because they kind of got it that if you were gay, you had probably thought a little bit more about sex mm-hmm. uh, than they had. And you had pretended to be straight for a while. So you had sort of a perspective on being straight if you were had been <laughs> closeted as we all have been. And so the, the joke was going to be me giving sex advice to straight people, not out of ignorance, like I didn't know anything about straight sex. I did. But I was going to treat straight people with the same contempt that straight advice columnists had always treated gay people with. You know, I would read Playboy Advisor sometimes when I was a kid. And, you know, they occasionally get a question from a gay dude and they'd be like, ooh, yuck, gross. Or Anne Landers or Abigail Van Buren, ooh, yuck, gross. Your poor mm-hmm. mother, her heart must be broken before Anne and Abigail came around on gay shit. And, <laughs> and yuck, but here's some advice after like you should see a priest and a psychotherapist about that problem right. of your gayness. <laughs> I would say that to straight people like, ooh, yuck, here's some advice. Well, how can you do this disgusting thing? Your poor mother must be heartbroken. And straight people loved it. They loved being treated with this kind of contempt because it was new and novel and, of course, humorous as opposed to deadly serious as it is for us when we're treated with that kind of contempt by straight people. Absolutely. So when did it change from being a joke into being the 30-year career that you've had giving advice? Within a year. Actually, within a a few months, the column was this sensation in Seattle, and then other papers started picking it up. And I started getting real questions. You know, I think when people sense that you have a sense of humor about sex, a sense of humor about yourself, and then they realize you're giving pretty good advice, Mm -hmm. then like the floodgates opened and I got, you know, 10 page letters from people in heartbreaking situations who really needed an intervention as much as they Mm. needed some advice. Yeah. (laughs) And I got to say, I started writing it when I was 25 and gay and Uh, I hadn't thought very deeply about women's pleasure. Like there were things I got Mm -hmm. wrong. The first time I read about the clitoris, I put it in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. Um, Famously. (laughs) Yeah. It it turns out it's not on the soft palate. That's just where my clitoris is. That's Um, (laughs) And so I I got a lot wrong, but I, but I was always sort of like, I I called it from the start, a conversation I'm having with my friends in a bar uh, mm. when we're drunk talking about our sex lives. And one of the things that we did that was so radical with Savage Love then because we had nothing to lose or we a new paper was we let people use the language they actually use when they talk about mm. sex with their friends, which in print then was really rare. In print then you had to use this kind of formal, medicalized Sanskrit. And you all, everybody had to say what everybody thought everybody should be doing or wanting and not what people weren't allowed to talk about what they were actually doing or wanting, including wanting to cheat, which came up a lot in Savage Love. And -hmm. it just, yeah. The funniest thing about the early days of Savage Love, and I still get this every once in a while, is someone will write in or call into the love cast and say, how dare you give advice to straight people? What could you possibly know about 
being straight as if as a gay person, it's possible to be as ignorant of straight people as some straight people are of gay people, as if we're not raised by straight parents often and straight, almost always in straight families Mm -hmm. by straight parents, as if we don't have straight siblings, straight friends, as if, um, for many of us, we didn't fake being straight for years, Mm -hmm. you know, make a close study of being straight because we were trying to convince people we were straight. Nobody who's straight does that about being gay. Nobody who's straight tries to pass themselves (laughs) off as being gay in their adolescence and studies how the gay boys walk (laughs) so that you can do that too. (laughs) Yeah, like a bird's eye view looking over straightness and you you, you can see in a different way maybe that's more productive and and a way that you can dissect it without being emotionally attached to it. And you're in, you're in the middle. Like mm-hmm. you sleep with men too, like the women, the straight women mm-hmm. and bi women who come to you advise do. Mm-hmm. And you're a man, like the men mm. who are straight may come to you advise. And and you can talk to women about what it is to be a man. And you understand when you're talking to women about who sleep with men, you understand not I think as viscerally as women often understand how dangerous men can be, but you understand male sexuality mm. and male sexual aggression. And male, like, needs and perversions, which, Mm. you know, so many women walk around thinking they're going to find Mr. Darcy out there. And you might, but Mr. Darcy's going to want you to pee in his mouth, too. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. So, so keen for that. So keen to find my Mr. Darcy's going to piss in my mouth. No, he he wants you to piss in his mouth. Oh, in his mouth. That's fine, then. That's fine. I'll take it. It's just like, Um, I get these letters from women who want a normal guy. And I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, I've... Dated and fucked a lot of men. Let me know when you meet a normal one, because I never have. Yeah, but one of my questions was, are there any normal, uh, nice men in the world? That, actually, what I guess what is normal, you know? I guess, like, what do we actually want from this? Well, when we started, when I started Savage Love, everyone, th- you know, if you tell somebody, you walk into a room, two people are having normal sex, what do you see? And they'll say a straight couple, married, missionary position, you know, the curtains drawn, the kids Mm -hmm. asleep. That is not normal. That is, you know, when you add up all the sex that everybody on the planet might be having on any given Saturday night, that's freakishly abnormal. And what we know now after 30 more years of sex research about variance is that variance is the norm when it comes mm-hmm. to human sexuality. So the, the more unique and personal your desires are, your relationships are, in a kind of weird way, the more normative you are. There was a study out yeah. of the UK a few years ago where they tried to measure what are called paraphilias, which I've talked about a lot about on my show. You've probably heard me talk about this study yeah. in particular. And a paraphilia is a non-normative sexual desire. It's a kink. And they went out to try to measure the prevalence of paraphilias. And what they found was that a majority of people have at least one, which means it's mm-hmm. not non-normative to have a kink. It's normal to have a kink. Well, we had this chat recently. I don't know if it was on the podcast or just after we finished recording one day. We were talking about what actually is a kink because like, like how far do we have to diverge from quote unquote normal sex? We had a sex historian on the podcast speaking out how missionary position only began to be the norm for actual missionaries, for actual missionaries going out and spreading the good word of the Lord and that the, the, the default position, uh, what in the 1700s, I think it was Oscar was yeah, doggy yeah, style. Yeah. That was the norm. So how do we define what a kink actually is then Standing up was also a norm for a very long time. Very few people had private beds, private bedrooms. Um, People slept in public public rooms. You really had to be a member of the aristocracy to have your own private bed in a private bedroom. Most people, when you talk about, you know, pre-18th, 17th century, fucked where they could and often it was standing up someplace. 
That's beautiful. I love that. <laughs> I, I think that I think that anything to do with sex can be a kink. Like, would you can you classify oral as being a kink? Can you classify? They used to when, you know, when books like The Sensuous Woman came out in the 70s and terrible books like Everything You Ever Needed to Know About Sex Were Afraid to Ask, which no one should read. Mm-hmm. Oral sex was talked about like something people get into. It was mm-hmm. talked about like it was a kink. Now, of course, it comes standard. Any model that arrives without oral should be returned to the lot, right? Okay, okay. <laughs> but, actually, but 40 I, years okay. ago, it was like, wow, oh, they're crazy doing that oral sex thing. But that was a time when all non procreative sex, sex for pleasure, was kind of stigmatized which is one of the reasons people had such trouble with gay people. Like all of our sex was mm-hmm. not procreative. Yeah. Like most straight sex is. Straight people like to think all their sex is procreative, even as straight people spend most of their time trying to avoid getting pregnant, trying mm-hmm. to undo pregnancies <laughs> after they happen. <laughs> and most straight people want to have a lot more sex than they do children. So straight people understand why gay people want to have sex for fun, for pleasure, which is why straight people want to have sex 99.99% of the time. For fun, for pleasure. Um, you mentioned just then that you think that any model that comes with a lot that it doesn't come with oral should be sent back. I had this, I had a, not a fight because of you, but I had a little weird moment with someone that I was sleeping with and we were talking about oral and I said, well, they said, you know, if someone didn't eat your pussy, would you date them? And I was like, no, like it's not a price of admission I'm willing to pay. Because I, yeah. use, I, use I use your language just very freely as though. As though I, as everyone knows it, right? Because I presume, how do you not live in a world with Dan in your ears? Everywhere <laughs> I can't comprehend it. So um, it's a great segue into the book. It's A to Z, Advice on Sex and Relationships. And you've got a lot of your Dan Savage-isms in there, including a price of admission. I want to talk about that for a second. So could you tell our listeners what a price of admission is? It's something that it's something you don't get from a relationship or something you have to put up with in a relationship. And you decide for yourself whether this thing you're not going to get, say your partner isn't into oral sex, doesn't like to mm. perform oral sex, is going without oral the price of admission that you're willing to pay to be with this person or one of them because there's always more than one. Mm. If it is, okay, pay the price of admission. Don't get oral. Resign yourself mm. to not getting oral. Be at peace with it. You can't be mad about it all the time because then you haven't paid the price of admission and enjoy the ride. You know, if it's just like being in an amusement park. If riding that roller coaster it costs so much that you're going to complain the entire time mm. you're on it, then don't ride the roller coaster. But if you're going to buy yeah. the ticket... Enjoy the ride. And this is something that I came up with, you know, just in thinking about my own relationship with my husband of 30 years early on. And this example is so boring, but it's it's not like I don't get my dick sucked or something. Not oral. (laughs) (laughs) But he can't put anything away. And so after we first moved in with each other, I would like walk into the kitchen and he would have made himself a sandwich and then walked away and left all the meat, the condiments, the bread everything out on the counter and I would go get him and yell at him and say, you got to put that away. You can't, we're going to die of botulism poisoning if you leave the ham out. (laughs) (laughs) And then one day I just put it all away and it was like, well, that was easier. Mm-hmm. That didn't generate mm-hmm. conflict in our relationship because I wasn't yelling at him and it took less mm-hmm. energy and effort for me just to like put it away. And I was like, that's the yeah. price of admission I'm willing to pay to ride this ride. If you've seen my husband, there's a lot of price of admission people will pay to ride that ride. Yeah, he's beautiful. <laughs> Have you and seen him, Oscar? 
Yeah, I did. I had a little before and I was like, wow, wow. Yeah. And yeah, you know what? He doesn't put things away, but at least you get your dick sucked. That's <laughs> right. Before. And uh, yeah. yeah, and he's good at it. Also. <laughs> okay, don't have to show off now. I'm <laughs> joking. He's one of those, I, I, I lucked out. He's one of those rare people who was like a scorching hot twink and then became a scorching hot daddy. Like usually you get, <laughs> yeah. the reward is you were one or the other. You were the hot twink. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you get yeah. to be the hot teddy if you weren't the hot twink. But Terry... <laughs> somehow got to be both <laughs> transformers yeah. so um in, in this kind of weird moment that i had with this person i i said very bluntly like i said the price of mission is i just wouldn't I, I just don't think i would want to be with someone that wasn't eating my pussy that for me that is not a price n- of mission you're willing not, to pay i'm just not gonna do it like i i, I need it to feel mm. sexy and to come and all these things and they kind of a acted as though what I said was very clinical and almost offensive, saying they're like price of admission. And I was like, oh for fuck's sake, here we go, Savage Love, Siri, play Savage Love cast, like, and <laughs> and then and then they kind of acted as though I was almost shallow for not for that being my price of admission. This drives Thoughts. me crazy. This comes up a lot. You've probably heard me talk about this a lot. Sexual mm-hmm. compatibility is important, and yes. we have to prioritize sexual compatibility, particularly in sexually exclusive relationships, which is what mm-hmm. most people want or think they want and will one Mm -hmm. day realize they don't want or don't want anymore because life is long and feelings and things change. But people all the time write me and say, everything's great. Love, love, love. Get along. Families get along. Everything's great. Great, great, great. And I know the butt is coming and the butt is the sex has always been lousy. The sex has never worked. But I couldn't prioritize sex because then I'm putting too much importance on something trivial, as Mm -hmm. if sex is trivial, as if sex isn't important, as if sex isn't bigger and more powerful than we are when Mm. you think about it. What came first, us or sex? Sex. Sex built us. (laughs) Spontaneous uh, mutation, natural selection. Sex built us and it's building whatever comes after us, unless AI is what comes after us. And (laughs) it's bigger and stronger, more powerful than we are. And people think, well, I shouldn't have to take it seriously or I'm a bad sex monster if I make sex an, an important criteria that I might end a relationship over. People just don't feel like... I mean, it makes me crazy. I can't, uh, 30 years I'm talking about this and I still can't speak articulately about it. People are told sex is so important, you shouldn't do it with anybody else. And then told sex is so unimportant, you shouldn't end a relationship if it doesn't work with this person that you're only allowed to do it with. If it's I heard you say that once so I put it on my screensaver. Yeah. If it's so important, you can't do it with anybody else. And it's important to make sure that this one person that you're going to do it with, that they do it well, that they eat your fucking pussy well. Yes. Not just eat it like blah, 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 <laughs> that they know what they're doing, that they enjoy like, it, <laughs> that they're, it feels like they're trying to dig your kidneys out, whatever it is that you require. That's what I deserve, Dan. But um, <laughs> I, why do you think people see sex? Why do you think there's that dichotomy? Because I on I was on, I was on The Bachelor, Dan, and I swear I've I've progressed past then. This is how I got my career, but it's been four years, and now I get to talk to you. So let's all just let's all move on. <laughs> no um, shade, no but, no no shade. I did drag for ten years. So. <laughs> Great, I love it. So um, I actually made the girls in the house listen to your podcast because I had an iPod and I downloaded it to go in there, and I was like, I can't survive without Dan Savage for three months, and they did not like me because I was slut shaming me left, right, and center. But on the show, I kept my like thing that I kept edited to being saying is like sexual compatibility is so important and sex. I, I, I need to make sure that our sexual chemistry is there. And I got all this 
vitriol online <laughs> for being um, being vain and shallow and not understanding what real love is. But I wrote this article like a couple months afterwards saying that basically it's it's a major differentiator for me between friendships and romantic relationships. So why would I not, if everything else was perfect and the sex wasn't there, I would just have a best friend. And if everything else was perfect and the sex wasn't there, you would have cancer. That's a cancer on a relationship. <laughs> yeah. Now, over time, over the decades, sex becomes less important. Um, mm. you, nobody looks, every once in a while in the newspaper, they'll print a, a story, you know, photo of two 95-year-olds who are still married. They've been married for 70 years, 75 years. And everyone, and they're holding hands and everyone's like, oh, that's so sweet. Nobody looks at that. To picture and things, they're fucking. They're fucking. Right? Fuck yeah. Like, Showing them that come every fucking day. Yeah. <laughs> like at some point, their love, connection, intimacy, longevity, it transcended sex. At some point, sex fell away. Maybe they stopped having sex with each other. Um, maybe one was done, the other wasn't. And it was a point of conflict in the relationship for a while. But eventually, they were both on the same page. Like, we're done, but we're still together. We're still in love. So romantic love can exist in the absence of sex. There, I talk about companionate relationships a lot. Mm-hmm. If two people are together and there's the sex is lousy or not good or not there or not compelling, and they're both happy, it's not a problem. No one should tell them, "Oh, you're not fucking," so you don't get to be in a relationship anymore. But if, it, but if it, it's so important that it work if sex is important to you and it's important to most people. And I think maybe the reason you got so much grief for talking about sexual compatibility was you made so many people who didn't prioritize it and were suffering for not having prioritized it self-conscious. You were mm. rubbing their noses, not in like that you think sex is so important, but that they fucked it up because they didn't think it was important enough. Absolutely. Thank you. That should go. That should be a fucking Daily Mail headline. Motherfuckers. (laughs) Dan Savage supports Abby's slutty behavior on The Bachelor. It was just Bachelor. I couldn't even be slutty. You know what? You and me, like, I get grief from closeted gay men who never came out and are angry at me for living the life that I live because Mm. they're, because they couldn't do it for themselves. They didn't let themselves have it. So you got a lot of rage directed at you because there were people out there with shitty sex lives. They were shitty all their lives because they didn't prioritize sex in the same way like closeted gay men hate out gay men because we we are living the life they can only dream of. Same with you and all those people who were giving you grief or a lot of them. And all my cummies everywhere. So, um, <laughs> Les, there's so many Dan Savages. <laughs> the word cummies, I think, kind of shocked. Dan, um, so there are so many Dan Savagisms that I kind of want to go through because sometimes I, like I said, you are a little voice in my head at all times where I, I, I hear your, you know, things like a fetish too far and GGG and monogamish and, and dump the motherfucker already. And all of these things exist in my brain. And obviously I would love to have a direct line to you to, to get the answer to things. But sometimes there are lines that I don't know uh, how they cross or where they cross. So for example, price of admission, we've already covered that about what you're willing to pay, what you're willing to put up with, or what you're willing to not receive in order to be in a relationship. Then you have DTMFA, which is dump the motherfucker already. 
So my question about these two, um, so sometimes for those listening on the podcast, Dan will just be like, someone will call in and it'll be a five minute voice note and it will be like so clear that this person should not be with that fucking cunt. And, <laughs> and like, it is like almost, you, like, I, I'll be like, you're in Australia. Laundry. I love how you can use the C word in a way I can't <laughs> on my podcast in America. It, it lands different. You can use you can use a, a voice clip of me saying fucking can't and you can just use it whenever you feel. I'll drop it in. <laughs> um, but I'll be like folding laundry and I'll be going, what the fuck is this fucking person talking about? Then you'll just go, DTMFA, get fucked. Well, you won't say get fucked because, again, the American audience. I'm wondering how do we know if we should be dumping the motherfucker already or if it's a price for admission thing and, and like how do you know we aren't being pushovers basically in that situation because I get torn in between the two because I'm anxiously and avoidant attachment which is so awful for me and everyone in my life there's no there's no formula <sighs> for that you, you know it when you know it and the real torment is there are times you're convinced you're in a DTMFA situation and then you hesitate to end the relationship because logistically it would be hard. Maybe you have kids and you're juggling all that. And you just like, I'm not going to file for divorce today. And then six months later, you're so glad you didn't. So there are times when you are misreading your own needs, mind, what's in your own best interest. But you know, it's like famously a Supreme Court justice here in the United States back when we had justice uh, and we would get it from our Supreme Court. Um, famously observed that it's hard to define pornography, but you know, when you see it, it's hard to define, yeah. to pin down exactly when you need to dump the motherfucker already. But it's, if, but you know it when you see it, we've all had friends where you're like, end this relationship, dump the motherfucker already. Mm. Uh, we know it when we see it, it's a little harder to know it when we're in it. Yeah. Maybe the rule is if three or more friends are telling you to dump the motherfucker already, then you should do it. Is that a, is that a nice formula? I just seen some formulas, Dan. I'm having a real hard time. <laughs> it's helpful to get input from family and friends. Like rarely do family and friends, unless you have really toxic relationships with lots of toxic people. And if everyone in your life is toxic, you're probably toxic too. If your family and friends all are, you know, your family and friends are rooting for you. They want you to have a good person, good things. And if your family and friends are all like, ugh, this asshole, yeah. at some point you have to, you'll either dig in and Romeo and Juliet it for a while and say, I see what's lovely about this person. And this is a problem for women in particular. Women, and it's kind of narcissistic, women think pussy is chemotherapy. Women think pussy's going to fix him, that he's going to get better because <laughs> I have the magic pussy and mm. I'm going to love him through this. I'm, he's a fixer upper. Men don't approach women like, how can I help her be better? You know, men don't do approach women like wanting someone in good working order. Like just how gay men approach each other, want someone in good working order. Gay men never acquire a project unless they wow. buy a house together that they're going to fix up. <laughs> 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 but but women have it in their heads that fixing men, healing men is part of their responsibility as women, which is yes. toxic shit put on women the way they're socialized. But it also plays to women's narcissistic self-aggrandizing impulse, that self-regard, that I'm so special mm. that, you know, this pit bull isn't going to eat my face or, you know, I'm so special 
that uh, I can fix him. I alone can fix it. Like Donald Trump said, so many women out there say that same thing about shitty men. Yeah. Not me though. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) not me. No, no, you're fine. Never. I've never said that. Have I? No, 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 no. (laughs) I'm moving on. Uh, Bit narcissistic. Yeah. Um, Those guys are, when you don't feel that tongue on your kidney during oral, that guy's out. No, literally they're, yeah. I actually am a bit too brutal lately. I was in my avoidant era for a while and I was dating like five people at once and it got really confusing and like there's there are probably five guys out there who'd like to be in a harem you could you could make that happen for yourself <laughs> you know what's funny though you were saying about when women in relationships their friends are often saying like oh like that motherfucker's toxic and that's probably a, a sign to get out of it my issue is i stay in things too long because i've dated so many cunts that when i date someone nice my friends get way too excited about a baseline person like they'd be like oh <laughs> he replies to you within like four days you should really keep him around so that's like where my issues begins that like you're too easily impressed by a halfway decent guy because you've dated so many cunts? It kind of, but it's also more that my friends get so, that I feel like I'll let my friends down. Like I've stayed in things for six months too long thinking my friends will be sad that I've fucked up the one nice person that was nice to me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. There are worse, re- people stay in relationships for worse reasons though than my you friends like this person. You know what? That's true. Again, Dan's some healthy. Moving on. Tick from Dan Savage. So the next kind of thing I want to speak about and compare, I guess, is being GGG and then a fetish too far. So can you explain what those two things are? Uh, GGG is what I think we should all be for our sex partners and expect our sex partners to be for us. It's a two-way street. Good, giving, and game. Good and bad. You know, a human is a lot more complicated than a violin and nobody can play the violin when they pick it up the first time. But Mm -hmm. we expect people to be just like effortlessly good at sex. You have to like try and and hone skills. So you got to be good and bad. You got to think about that. Giving means sometimes you give pleasure without an expectation of an immediate return. Sometimes you give that blowjob. Sometimes you eat that pussy. Sometimes it's about the other person. And it's not just like I'm doing you, you're doing me at the same time, at the same pace. Mm-hmm. Um, but there needs to be reciprocity there. It needs to be balanced. Game is what gets me in trouble a lot. Game means game for anything, dot, 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 within reason. That's the only G that came qualified. Game for anything within reason. You're dating somebody, the example I always like to use, you're dating somebody who has a foot fetish. How Mm -hmm. hard is it for you to let somebody lick your feet or massage your feet? Mm, if that's so not nice. all they want to do, huh. right? If they're <laughs> able to like <laughs> meet your needs, have vanilla sex, you know, explore whatever your kinks or sexual interests are, and you can fold your feet into the action in the same way that your boobs used to be folded into the action with a normal guy, mm-hmm. that's that's something you should be game for. That's a reasonable mm. thing. You know, somebody wants to shit in your mouth, not something that is reasonable, yeah. not a reasonable <laughs> ask, not something that G requires you to do. Open relationships, not necessarily something maybe you should think about, but not something I think is a reasonable ask. It is something a lot of people get asked, but it's not reasonable to expect an automatic yes. I think I want to lick your feet. You should like expect a yes. And I, I always warn the straight women out there, break up with the honest foot fetishist. You will marry the dishonest necrophiliac. 
Break up with the guy who had the like easily <laughs> indulged, pretty standard kinker fetish, mm-hmm. and r- go find your normal guy. And I promise you, the normal guy was hiding something so much worse <laughs> until after you had those kids and walking away was so much harder. <laughs> Foot fetishes get so much shit. Well, for lack of a better term. Um, And and the the coprophiliacs are really annoyed by all the shit the foot fetishes are getting because it's the coprophiliacs who want the poop. (laughs) But I feel like it's a a very vanilla, it's a very vanilla quote unquote kink. I feel like is, to me, I don't even think it's, well, I guess it is a kink, but to me, it's, it's so vanilla. How do we then as, as. People a fetish in a too far, right? The, the other exactly. part of it was a fetish too far. Like mm-hmm. that thing that's unreasonable is a fetish too far. There are certain sexual interests that can't be indulged by a person who is only in, into it or going there for your pleasure because they're so extreme um, mm. that you really need somebody who's as into it as you are to go there. And you, like an example from the lives of some of my friends, super extreme bondage, right? Not just like silk scarves tied to the bed, but like mummification or certain kinds of like extreme immobilization or sensory deprivation. If you like doing that to someone, that's not something someone who didn't want that done to them can tolerate. Mm. Thank God for the internet. You can scour the world and find the people who want that. And then pick through those people to find someone you might be able to be in a relationship with or enter into a relationship with somebody who's vanilla or that doesn't share that kink, but is willing to accommodate your need to express that desire, like maybe through fantasy or pornography, which is not satisfactory practically in most cases over the long term, but, you know, willing to let you go explore that at a S&M club and let you get that out with other people and not expect that from them. You can make that work, that relationship between somebody with a fetish too far. They don't necessarily have to partner with people who share their fetish, but they can't reasonably expect that someone who's GGG is going to be able to get shot on or, you know, have a butt plug in and, you know, a gag in and then be mummified and unable to communicate with the world for three or four hours. Like, that's a lot. And (laughs) there are people who are into that. And if you're into that as a top, go find someone who's into that as a bottom. They're out there. They're all on the internet desperately looking for you. So, okay. So a lot of my listeners, I imagine, have quite vanilla sex. And they would be listening to this going, well, I don't want anyone touching my feet ever. Um, And you're saying it's very very reasonable, right? And I, I, I agree with you. But how can they mentally make that jump from being... I don't want to say selfish, but from, from being, <laughs> from being a bit, um, comfortable. Yeah. Like from, from being uncomfortable to then, to then just push themselves a bit and a bit and a bit with, with while making sure that their boundaries um, are being acknowledged by themselves, yeah, even, even just by themselves. And that the relationship is still reciprocal, that their needs are being met. Sometimes, mm. you know, someone who's had a foot fetish all his life and it's almost always men, finally opens up about that with somebody who's willing to go there. And then that becomes all that the guy wants to do and Mm. neglects out of selfishness or, you know, momentary blindness or stupidity, neglects their partner's needs. And that's not fair to the, you know, otherwise vanilla person who's indulging you for you to like be so obsessed with your kink that you neglect them and neglect their needs. But if you've been asked something, you know, the first time we're asked about something that wasn't one of our sexual interests, our impulse is to be like, ooh, yuck. Ew. Right? Mm. Ew. And I think you have to train yourself to go, instead of ew, just, oh, 
<laughs> There's a slight change in mouth shape. Yeah, and so it just like ooh, oh. tell, tell me more. I don't. I'm not. You're not obligated to do something the instant someone asks for mm. it. You can, you know, shake the magic eight ball. Ask me again later. Need more mm-hmm. information. And, and, and keep talking, but often our reaction, and, and this is a this is another one of those places where you wade in, or I wade in, and a woman's experience is going to be different than a man's experience, right? Mm-hmm. Because women are socialized to meet men's needs, to prioritize their male partner's needs over their own, to not say no. And so I don't want women to wind up in circumstances if they feel like they want to be sex positive, they want to be GGG, they wind up doing things that really make them uncomfortable, that they do not want to do. And there's a difference between the thing that makes me uncomfortable because it turns me off, because I find it repulsive, because, you know, it's traumatizing or triggering, and the thing I don't want to do because I didn't think of it. Yeah, because it wasn't right. one okay, of my turn offs. Okay. The thing that if I gave it a little more thought, or if I was invested in my partner's pleasure, even though it wasn't my idea. You know, if we only ever do things sexually when we go to bed with someone that, you know, you through processes of elimination or filling out forms, both people are equally into, you're going to have a very limited sexual repertoire with that partner. Mm. You want to go there. And there's all sorts of studies now. When I first started writing about this, I was like out on a limb all by myself. Amy Muse is a sex researcher at Queens University in uh, Ontario. It's called, oh my God, I always space on what she calls it, but it's basically GGG and has found that people who do things for a partner that the partner enjoyed, where they're indulging the partner, they wind up having better sex, feeling more connected. Oh, themselves. Not just the person being indulged, not just the person with a foot fetish getting to like come on the feet feels better. Obviously, he's going to feel better. But the woman <laughs> who went there with him also feels more sexually connected, feels like they're having better sex, feels more emotionally connected in that relationship. And it's those sorts of achievable... I want you to be happy. I'm willing to do this thing that doesn't leave me curled up in the fetal position on the floor in the bathroom afterwards crying. I'm willing to do this thing for you and experience pleasure vicariously through your pleasure, through the pleasure I'm giving you. I am also deriving pleasure. And then you're meeting my needs. And that kind of, it, it sounds a little transactional, but it actually, you know, some transactions make the world a better and relationships a better place. Absolutely. You mentioned before um, open relationships and I guess polyamory and a huge reason why, I mean, I've been in pretty much exclusively open situations or relationships since I was pretty much off for four years. So I was 23 when I was in The Bachelor. So I was still a baby. And my, you know, my ex and I were on and off for, for a long time. And then we were open. Then another ex and I were publicly open. Like we announced on the podcast, we were open and it caused <laughs> holy fucking shit. Like it caused, like it was Armageddon because <laughs> as well in Australia, there's like maybe 10 people that are in media. Like, like, this, like if you if you draw a map of the Australian media landscape, we all lead back to one person in the middle. Uh, like it's, it's fucking wild. And it's Tim so, Minchin. Yeah, it's Tim Minchin. <laughs> oh, it's just there on the piano. One degrees of separation. And like it all yeah. leads back to Tim Minchin. <laughs> Tim Minchin. Absolutely. So, so it caused all this fucking outcry. And because I listened to you, maybe I hadn't been – brainwashed by fucking Dan Savage. I really didn't. I I genuinely didn't. And because I'm queer. So in queer spaces, it's so not even a question. It's actually a question of, oh, you're monogamous. Oh, 
That's interesting. And people mm. couldn't comprehend that. Do your that. parents know? Yeah, yeah literally. <laughs> I'm like, how does that work? Like, what's yeah, going right. on? Are you guys okay? Is, is there trouble in the relationship? Do you trust each other? <laughs> Blink um, twice if you need me to call the authorities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, wow, scary, scary vibes from all of you. But um, it yeah, it, re- it really caused a fucking outcry. And it was like weeks and weeks of me. I think I had to go... I think I'd asked to go on the project or something, which is like our. And there news. was a lot of requests, a lot of requests wow. came through. It was in media and everything like that. It was a big deal for so. I think it's Australia is a little bit conservative. I think you know, like it's generally like you know, population wise. So there was a lot of noise made about it. God, that's not the impression that you get of Australia from far away or from the Australians I have known and fucked in America. Just <laughs> the, the impression yeah. you get is Australia is much less religious. And as an American, it's religiosity that correlates with that kind of sexual conservatism, but violent, you know, resorts to death threats to enforce a kind of sexual conservatism. I would think hopefully Australia had a little less of that, but any of that is unacceptable and horrifying. I've got a quick question I wanted to ask actually, Dan, obviously you've met a lot of couples, you know, you know, a lot of stories. What's a situation that just always sticks out that you always remember that you've come across? Oh my God. Um, I'm going to be stumped and blank. This is where my <laughs> sleep deprivation is going to so. kick in. <laughs> yeah, I invented a term called PUD, which stands for poly under duress. Uh, also out, open under duress. It just doesn't flow out of the mouth as easily as PUD. <laughs> as this term to describe people who the partner wanted to open the relationship and they didn't, and they reluctantly agreed to open the relationship. They decided that tolerating openness, or at least their partner sleeping with other people was something they were willing, a price of mission they were willing to pay, at least temporarily to see if they could adjust. And, you know, everybody, when they talk about open relationships and polyamory, you know, it has to be consensual. Everybody has to agree. It has to be joyful. In reality, when you talk to people who are in open relationships, the origin story is often conflict and pain, whether Mm. there was cheating and then, you know, like spies that came in out of the cold about it and retroactive approval was extended to past infidelities or future ones. Most people who are in open relationships, the the origin is messy uh, and sometimes feels not consensual that both partners didn't agree to it enthusiastically. That said, what often happens is you PUD is temporary. You know, if you're poly under duress, the relationship isn't going to survive or you're going to become happily poly. That there's no other option. The relationship won't endure if one person is miserable and because they're going to realize it's not a price of mission they can pay long term. But what often happens is it's one person's idea to open the relationship or to shift to polyamory. The other person is like, no, no, no. Somebody issues an ultimatum. They say, okay, I guess for you, ugh. And then a year later, two years later, both people are equally as into the open relationship and polyamory now that Mm. PUD is past tense. PUD is, you're never, you're never a PUD for long because you either get out of the relationship uh, or you, it's no longer under duress. You're just poly. It's a moment yeah. in time, a beautiful, awful moment in time. Yeah. Um, Can we talk I about, w- there's something I always want to say about monogamy. I am not 
one of those poly open people who thinks you're doing it wrong, that people who are non-monogamous are more highly evolved. I have all my life been told by monogamous people that I'm doing it wrong. And my reaction to that is not, no, 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 you're doing it wrong, which you often hear from poly people about monogamous people. There are some things though, I think monogamous people, if they would hear me out about, it would make their monogamous relationships more resilient and last longer. And, and, and just two of those things are being monogamous doesn't mean you don't want to fuck other people. It means you don't. Being in love, we're told, means you're not going to want to fuck anybody else, right? That's the myth. And the reality is if being in love with somebody else meant you didn't want to fuck anybody else, we wouldn't have to make a monogamous commitment. We wouldn't even have a word for it. Wow. Right? That we have yeah. to identify it as something people do. It's great. The other thing is monogamy is the only thing humans attempt where perfection is the only metric for success. Okay. This is what that, I try to explain to people all the time and I can never get it right. Then I try and find an episode where you're saying it. So now I want it on record <laughs> so I can find it easily. Go Dan. Fuck If yeah. you're with somebody for 50 years and they cheated on you once or twice, they were good at monogamy, not bad at it. We're told that if you're with somebody for 50, 60 years and you find out they cheated on you twice, that you were never in love, that they were never in love, that it was all a lie. And that destroys not open relationships. Mm -hmm. That myth destroys monogamous relationships. Monogamy is something that people do, do for each other. It's a sacrifice. We should honor it as a sacrifice. It's a struggle. Sometimes, you know, you know, your sexual relationship suffers because you have kids and under a lot of stress for a while and you stop fucking and it becomes a sexist relationship. Remaining monogamous in those circumstances is really a sacrifice and a gift someone is giving you. And you should be appreciative of that struggle and that sacrifice. But just like sometimes I can't wrap my head around all the bullshit that comes at us about monogamy, of course, you're going to want to fuck other people. And so is your partner. So maybe don't waste so much time policing your partner for evidence of what you should just accept to be true. Mm. They looked at porn. They looked at the barista. They thought the waiter was hot and I'm melting down. Why? Because, because they want to fuck somebody else. Of course they do. So do you, we all do all the time. Do they fuck anybody else? And are they considerate? You know, someone who rubs your nose and flirting with the waiter is being an asshole. asshole it's yeah. not just that they want to fuck the waiter. They're just being rude to you and not considerate of your feelings, which is their top job as your partner. And I don't say these things to undermine monogamous relationships, you know? No. And, and, yeah. and when it comes to affairs and infidelities, we tell people that in infidelities, unforgivable and it's always the end of the relationship. And then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We also then tell people, you know, cheating is unforgivable. And then we redefine absolutely everything is cheating. Looking at porn is cheating. Sending a text message to an ex on their birthday. Liking a photo is cheating. Is cheating. Liking a photo Liking. is cheating. Following people who are hot on Instagram who are not me. That's cheating. Having a work friend of the opposite sex that you click with and vibe with and you have a rapport with. That's cheating. Emotional cheating. Emotional affairs. Okay, okay, crazy straight people. Okay, crazy monogamous mm -hmm. people. Define cheating as unforgivable. <laughs> define everything as cheating and then sit there and wonder why you're single again. <laughs>
And also the fact that uh, like cheating being the worst, infidelity is the worst thing that you could ever do in a relationship. I've never, ever aligned with. And again, probably because Dan, you've raised me. So I'm not really sure. Like it's <laughs> like <laughs> Esther Perel is really smart about this. Esther that- Perel and you have both raised me. I didn't have a dad. So you're the closest thing I've got to it. Uh, so there <laughs> we Esther go. Daddy, uh, Daddy but, Dan. But you know, 30 of 3000 of my balls would fit in one of Esther Perel's ovaries. Like she's the <laughs> badass, but her, because because she's like she's one of them, you know. I'm like sex radical, gay, crazy mm. person. You know, <laughs> Esther Perel is a married straight lady who mm-hmm. does couples counseling and a psychotherapist. Like when she says these things, it's it's I can be more easily dismissed than she can. And she says sometimes the sometimes the victim of the affair is not the victim of the marriage. That's Esther Perel. Favorite Esther Perel quote ever as someone yep. to be married and hasn't had a relationship for longer than a year. Wow. Can, I'm like, yeah, Esther. <laughs> you can betray. And as I translate that sometimes is you can betray someone with something other than your dick. Mm. With, you know, Esther writes about this too. Contempt, neglect, taking each other for granted. These are also ways, vi- emotional violence, physical violence. These are ways that we betray our partners that can be more painful then mm. I touched somebody else with the tip of my penis that one time on a business trip a decade ago. Yeah. And society is so strong about this that even when I say, if I have been cheated on, like if I have been in a monogamous relationship before I've decided to just be open, I, people would cheat on me and I'd go, Ugh. And my friends would almost get angry at me because I wasn't caring as much as they did. And I genuinely couldn't, I couldn't grasp it. I, cu- I couldn't find the anger inside of me. And then I, you know, it would be the things around it. It would be the fact that they, they lied to my face or that we went to have dinner that night and they were fucking someone else. But it was more the fact that- And they didn't I even didn't wash my... their face. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I, like you didn't even fucking- You went in for that kiss and you were like, night. I smell ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think when people, when, when, when you push people about it, they say it's like, they, they can never really explain why, why infidelity is the worst thing that can happen to them. And if it is for them, that's fine. But for me, it's almost, like they push it upon me. When I say the worst thing happened to me is like, uh, someone fucking me up financially, like using me for money. Like that, that's, that's my childhood trauma. But the, the infidelity thing is everyone's go-to, and then if you don't agree with that, you are seem to be as bad as a cheat, quote unquote, as bad as a cheater. I find. Yeah, because you're normalizing it. You're not having the reaction that you're supposed to have, which affirms my feelings about how I would feel in that circumstance. Mm. I had an experience once with a boyfriend who insisted on monogamy and was really adamant about it, as was my husband when we first got together for the first four years. Mm-hmm. And that boyfriend, um, before my husband, we were together for a year. I went out of town for the first time in that relationship after a year and I came back and he tearfully confessed to me that he cheated. Mm. And of course he cheated first, right? Because it's always Cause the one who's one who monogamy because yeah. he's projecting what they're capable of onto you. Uh-huh. And he like, gives me the whole confession and I look at him and I say, was he hot? Can we have a freeway? <laughs> <laughs> and he has a meltdown. He gets mad at me because I'm not mad at him. And I was like, you to feel something. Yes. I was like, wait, you cheated on someone else after giving me so much grief for a year about whether I was going to cheat on you and I'm in trouble? Yeah. No, I have the same thing. Aren't you jealous? Why aren't you jealous about this girl talking to me? I'm like, why the fuck would I be jealous? I don't, I don't give a shit. In fact, fuck her in front of me. 
Like genuinely, it's like like I'm a cut queen. Like yeah, please, that's, uh, that was my reaction. Like, can, I think by can we have a three way? I was like, can I watch next time? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, if you're gonna cheat like, on me, can I be in the room at least? Yeah, it was inconsiderate to not Facetime me with everyone's consent. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that was my issue. Um, but you also speak about. Oh, sorry, I know we've got only literally a minute left, but I that this all reminded me of um, being monogamous under duress and how I, I think that a huge issue as well as how we approach relationships is the the. Deep default is monogamy, but you actually can be like trying to be monogamous for someone else when that is a natural setting, right? Oh yeah. Like when I talk about putt, I always like to remind people that there are 10 million times more people who are monogamous under duress, muds, um, because they made a monogamous commitment that they shouldn't have. Often people feel, I felt when I was in a monogamous relationship for five years, I cheated a lot. And I thought, oh, I am failing at monogamy. It took me a while to go, no, 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 monogamy is failing me. Monogamy is not right for me. It's not that I'm not right for monogamy. There are many more people out there who were convinced that they had to make a monogamous commitment because they were told monogamy is what everybody does, everybody expects, and all good people do and want and expect. And who doesn't want to be a good person? And so people who shouldn't make monogamous commitments do. They don't always, people who shouldn't don't always make monogamous commitments to people who also shouldn't make them. So you have one person who shouldn't have and can't honor a monogamous commitment in a relationship with one person who can honor it and should make that. And that is what would make them happy. And it becomes an engine of conflict and misery. So wanting to have a conversation about non-monogamy and people who are happier in non-monogamous relationships, that will keep those people out of monogamous relationships, which is better for monogamous people in the long run. If all of us who shouldn't be making those commitments don't make them to Give people them a choice, who can and should. Yeah, absolutely. It's just the, even the, when it comes to sexuality, this is true of so many, like asexuality. We mm. haven't didn't really have a conversation about it until about 15 years ago. It's really good that people who are asexual have a word now and a self-conception, even a community so that you don't wind up with people in relationships where they're having sex they don't want to have and are miserable because they didn't understand who they were and what they wanted. And so like, there's just so many ways in which the conversation about monogamy mirrors the conversation about asexuality, mirrors the conversation about homosexuality, trans shit, kink. Like the more people who know who they are, the easier it's going to be for people to sort themselves into relationships that will make them happy. Absolutely. Well, that's a great place to, and I feel like your podcast is a major source of that where you can hear about all different people, all different stories and hear your amazing advice that 99.9% of the time I agree with and when I don't agree, then I sit down and I think and I go, Dan was right. So, <laughs> Dan, the book is called A to Z, Advice on Sex and Relationships. Also, listen to the Savage Lovecast. I swear to fucking God, if, I, if you don't do that... <laughs> Block me. Like, yeah, actually I, block me. <laughs> I'm done. You, you, to date, Abby, you got to eat pussy and listen to my show. Literally, <laughs> literally, literally. I've like everyone that I start going to, I go, listen to this podcast and we can discuss it. He, 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 he. And if they don't, boring as fuck, lazy as fuck, and my kidneys are unlicked. So it's like, what the fuck is going on? Dan Savage, thank you so much for your time. I know that I said at the start, but this is my career is sweet. Now I can retire now. This is all I've ever wanted. I'm thank joyous. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, and I'd be happy to come back anytime. <gasps> thank you so much, Dan. 
Okay, so here's me at the end because I'm so obsessed with Dan that I need you all to go and engage with all of his shit because I actually think the world would be a better place if everyone listened to Dan Savage. So um, obviously listen to the Savage Lovecast. It'll be in the show notes. Dan's website will be. Savage Lovecast. Um, also there is a Savage Love column, like he was saying. There is Hump Film Festival, which is his porn film festival i was going to ask him about it but we got distracted if you are in america that would be pretty random um i do have like four american listeners so go and see the film festival but if not you can stream it online it is basically like amateur porn and uh where else can you find dan i mean just honestly listen to dan savage i don't think you will understand how amazing this this man is and the podcast is um and if you're wondering what the podcast actually is, because we didn't talk about it, it's like people call in, do voice notes, and he answers their questions. And he also does amazing political rants top of the show. It's how I know a lot about um, American politics, to be honest. So he's just the best. Um, all right. Love yous. Bye. Listener.